Is real change possible? Suppose you are knee-deep in a period of time when you feel purposeless or more than a little lost, and this isn't the first time. Is it possible, really possible, for you to experience life differently? Or suppose your marriage is a series of grunts and groans without any real communication, and you've been at it for years, you know what he's going to say, you know how she's going to respond. Is real change possible? Now look, I don't think we're being realistic unless we ask that question in a real way for ourselves. One of the things that the advances in, recent advances in brain science has taught us is just how much about us is pre-wired. It's humbling. It's even a little bit discouraging. Was our choice of vacation or our relational choices, were they real choices or were they just the result of brain chemistry? And how about our our bad habits? Are, Are they real choices? Are they even ours? I mean, we can be forgiven for believing that real change is just not possible, but it is. The Bible is to be believed, and it is, then real change can happen, but it must be remembered, and if you miss everything else, don't miss this. It must be remembered that real healthy change begins with healthy repentance. Uh, We learn from many personal testimonies in the Bible that whole story arcs can be dramatically altered, futures can be realigned, angry people can become peacemakers, shattered marriages can become whole, they can even become healing places for other people, lives that were going nowhere can be filled with purpose, real change can happen, but we can't forget that healthy change always begins with healthy repentance. We're going to talk about that today. That's why, that's why Matthew could summarize Jesus, the, the entire early preaching of Jesus' ministry, he could summarize it with one phrase, and he did. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's Jesus' don't miss this principle. In other words, Jesus was saying, this, this whole new move of God that I'm talking about, it begins with repentance. And that's why when a huge number of people responded to Peter's first ever sermon, Peter responded to them by saying, listen, here's what you need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of Jesus. Now, uh, I'm going I'm to say a little something about that baptism thing in a little while, but, but I want you to notice about that the primacy of repentance again. And King Josiah, our story today, provides us a perfect example of this. So repentance. Repentance means to head in a new direction. It's it's a change of heart and mind that moves out to our actions and our choices. All true spiritual growth and change begins with repentance. And what King Josiah does We'll see it in chapters 22 and 23 of 2 Kings. What he does gives us a perfect model for what healthy repentance looks like. So if we want change in our lives, we will pay attention today. Now let's, uh, let's back up and remember the setting. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel fell. 722 BC. And we have been this summer, this is our eighth message in the back part of 2 Kings. We have this summer been walking our th- ourselves through the kings of Judah who were king, 
kings after, in Judah, after the northern kingdom of Israel had fell. 722, uh, northern kingdom of Israel fell. Hezekiah, I'm sorry, Hezekiah was king. We talked about him for a few weeks. Hezekiah was king in Judah from, I've got these little notes up here so I can remember the time, 716 to 687 B.C. And then Manasseh was king 687 to 642 B.C., 55 years. And then his son Ammon was king from 642 to 640 B.C., only two years, and then he was assassinated, and they put his son, Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, on the throne as an eight-year-old boy. And Josiah started ruling. Now, during the 55-year reign of Manasseh and the two-year reign of his son Ammon, Judah spiraled downward, economically and spiritually. Uh, Things devolved to such an extent that, that we hear poor people were routinely being abused, idols were set up even in the temple, and the king himself was sacrificing his own children to appease other gods. So Josiah came to power in that context as an eight-year-old boy, and did you remember the text? Quote, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, not turning to the right or the left. Now we don't know how that happened. It could have been the influence of his mother. It could have been the influence of other significant mentors uh, because both his father and his grandfather were wicked. So we know they weren't the source. But whatever the source, Josiah was serious about his relationship with God. And when Josiah was in his mid-20s, he, uh, so he'd been reigning, I think, for 18 years. He, he undertook a project to remodel the temple. It was evidently in, in uh, disrepair. Money was raised, labor was employed, and the high priest, Hilkiah, was set up to manage the project of, of the reconstruction of the temple. At one point, Josiah's administrative assistant, Shaphan, was sent to Hilkiah to give him the latest contributions and also to give him Josiah's latest instructions. And in the exchange between them, High priest Hokiah told the secretary Shaphan, listen, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. (laughs) That's incredible. In the cleanup, in the early construction of the temple, someone had found the book of the law tucked away somewhere in the temple under debris. We don't know what. In other words, evidently they had lost the books of Moses. Who knows how long it had been since anyone had studied Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So Shaphan took the books and read them. Then he reported all of this to uh, Josiah. And let's pick up the story in verse 11 of chapter 22 of 2 Kings. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what's written in this book that we found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. At that point, uh, High Priest Hilkiah recommended, okay, well, you should go see the prophetess Huldah because she's someone who knows the word of the Lord. And so 
a whole entourage gathers together and, and they go to speak to Hilda to get further explanation of what the book had said. They wanted to know what was on God's mind, what was God's thinking about their activity, and what was God's expectations of them. They wanted to know the full report on where they stood before God and what they'd been doing. And she said this, and we need to hear uh, her words. This is what the word of the Lord, of, uh, God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book of the kings of Jude, king of Judah has read. Because they've forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by their idols that they have made. My anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you've heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would be accursed and laid waste. And, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I've heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. Uh, we can't miss this. Because what we get from Josiah here in chapters 22 and 23 is a, a model for how to repent healthily. Now, I don't believe in formulas. They don't really work. So let's don't call this a formula. Let's call it a model. It's a model for healthy repentance. And, and when we unpack chapters 22 and 23, and I want to encourage you to go home later and read this on your own, the full text of chapter 22 and 23. When we unpack it, there are four clear stages, I believe, that are worth our noticing about healthy repentance. Stage number one, Josiah experienced deep sorrow over his sin. Now, in the ancient world, they ritualized sorrow, and the most dramatic form of sorrow was ritualized by tearing one's clothes. This is what Josiah does when he hears the word of the Lord. And the author doesn't say, but you have to imagine that Josiah is thinking, what, what have we done? What are we doing? Uh, A.W. Pink once said, it's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it that distinguishes the child of God from the empty professors. It's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it that distinguishes the child of God from the empty professors. You see, we are, we are not without fault. We, we, we aren't. We are people who have blown it repeatedly, but we grieve over that, and that's one of the things that marks us and sets us apart as children of God. I've, I've, I've often said here, whenever I hear someone complain about the hypocrisy of the church, I respond by saying, well, you shouldn't visit Gateway because we're, we're people who say one thing and do another. We constantly disappoint our own conscience and, and we, we violate what God is expecting us to do, but we're deeply sorry about it. And we long for him to change us, and in fact, he's in the process of doing so. That's the difference. Sorrow. Now listen, before we go any further, there are two things we should make clear about sorrow. First of all, we will make no progress in the spiritual life without it. Real change begins with repentance, and repentance begins with sorrow. That's stage one. Secondly, 
Not all sorrow is created equal. So please keep this in mind. If you're grieving this morning about something that you've done or some pattern in your life, not all sorrow is created equal. The Apostle Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians 7. He said, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There's more than one kind of sorrow. And worldly sorrow is self-focused. It's sorry that it got found out. It wallows in guilt and shame. Worldly sorrow is the sorrow of the perfectionist who is convinced she should have done it better. And worldly sorrow is the sorrow of the the fun lover who, who is really depressed that he wasn't invited. Worldly sorrow doesn't end in sorrow. Worldly sorrow ends in death or a death cycle. And you may recognize it. Guilt, shame, repeat. Guilt, shame, repeat, etc. This is why Paul says, and I want you to see this verse in Romans chapter 2. This is why Paul says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Even though repentance begins with a broken heart and a torn robe, and that ain't fun. But it's an act of kindness on God's part. Because godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Stage one of healthy repentance is godly sorrow. Stage two, deeper recognition of my sin and its impact. You see, sorrow isn't enough. If I hit my wife, Diane, it's not enough for me to feel sorry about it. I've got, I've got to see my sin for what it is and see the impact of it. This is an awful but necessary part of the work of repentance. Now, if you're honest, if I gave you a minute, you'd have to end up thinking, <laughs> who wants that? I mean, that sounds masochistic. Not only, not only should I feel bad, but I should wallow in it, Ed. I don't want that. But wallowing isn't the point. God isn't interested in wallowing. He's interested in our active listening so that we really get it. Otherwise, repentance won't take. I don't know why this is the case, but I'm convinced, based on lots of evidence in my own life and based on tracking this in the lives of some of you, I'm convinced this is an unavoidable work if we want real change in our lives. We've got to dig in. We're just programmed to minimize and to to dismiss our own sin if we don't do this work. Last week, Bill Russell uh, was here, and, and Bill talked about how we tend to view our sin, how we tend to see our sin. And he used a great analogy. If you're here, you might remember. He said, we tend to think of our sin like a, a foul ball in baseball. It's, it's very unfortunate, but it's a one-off. I'm really sorry I got so angry. I feel bad about it. Uh, I'm glad that's over with. I, I feel really bad about lying about that whole thing. I, I've got to try to do better next time. I'm glad that's over with. But no, Bill explained that our sin is a debris field. It creates mess and hurt and confusion by the acre. And we will not be moved to allow God to do the deeper inner surgery that he must do to produce real change if we do not comprehend the breadth of the problem. I'm going to say that again. We will not be moved to allow God 
to do the deep inner surgery that he must do to produce real change if we do not comprehend the breadth of the problem. Remember what King Josiah did? Back in verse 13, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what's written in this book that's been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers haven't obeyed the words of this book. He didn't bury his hand, head in the sand. There was no minimizing, no sidestepping, no self-justification, no shortcuts. Go ask of the Lord. I want the full report. Where do we stand? What have we done? I want to hear it all. You know, um, self-awareness is a great thing. We, and that, that's, that's, uh, we do a lot of work on self-awareness. Even, even uh, if you work in the corporate world, even in the corporate world, you know, you've done strength finders or Myers-Briggs or you've had conversations about who you are and who I am and how we work better together. And it's really important emotional and spiritual work, knowing ourselves, our strengths, our weaknesses, our tendencies. But real wisdom involves knowing how we impact others not just who we are. That level of awareness creates the space within which God can produce real change. We have to really see the impact of our sin on those around us. We have to see how God thinks about it before healthy repentance can take root. Look, sin is everything we think or do or say uh, our, our patterns, our activities, our habits, through which we try to find meaning or purpose or pleasure apart from God. Now, you might be thinking, well, my anger or yours, that's not finding purpose or pleasure apart from God, but it is. When I'm treated unjustly or minimized, it feels right, it feels good, it feels empowering to give expression to that through anger. Without the anger, I feel hurt and vulnerable. And who wants that? So I use anger to find relief, to find pleasure in a way that ignores God. And the same with all of our other baser emotions and our activities that are off base. I love what uh, Rosario Butterfield said about this. She said, one very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life to me, plain and simple. My heart is an idol factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Any pattern, any activity, anything we think, do, or say through which we find our meaning or purpose or pleasure apart from God. I can't tell you how many times I have heard someone say something like, Oh, I, I know I can be a bit harsh. And there's even regret in the statement. Yes, but do you know how God feels about that? And do you know how others around you are impacted by that harshness? Do you know what that harshness feels like to others? Have you done any work around that? In order to walk into and through healthy repentance, we've got to see our sin for what it really is, how it impacts others and how God sees it. Stage one experiences sorrow over sin. Stage two digs down for deeper recognition of my sin and its impact. And 
Stage three then, remove the apparatus that sponsors your sin. This is what repentance looks like. I can't read all of chapter 23. Again, I want to encourage you to look at it later, but I want you to listen to just a sample. I'm going to read verses 8 through 15. And you know what? For this one, let's get that on the screen, verses 8 through 15. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask us to go old school. Let's, let's stand out of reverence for God's word here. Josiah chapter 23, verses 8 through 15. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the shrines at the gates, at the entrance to the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which is on the left of the city gate. Although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. He desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, So no one could use it to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire of Moloch. He removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz and the altars Manasseh had built in the two courts out of the temple of the Lord. He removed them from there, smashed them to pieces, and threw the rubble into the Kidron Valley. The king also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption, the ones King Solomon of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Shemesh, the vile God of Moab and for Molech, the detestable God of the people of Ammon. Josiah smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles and covered the sites with human bones. Even the altar of Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished. He burned, he, he burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. You may be seated. Uh, it goes on. He even slaughtered the priests, killed the priests who served at all of these high places. Uh, you can't really call this house cleaning. This is scorched earth. He scrupulously destroyed all of the accoutrements of their sin, all of the instruments that aided them in their idolatry. He annihilated them. Josiah did his best to thoroughly remove the entire apparatus that supported Judah's sin. Now for you or me, maybe this looks like having a buddy who will ask us and then ask our spouse, so how's that anger thing going? For you or me, maybe it's removing Facebook from our phone or eliminating our ability to look at it altogether. Maybe it's throwing away all the junk food anywhere in our house and asking our spouse to throw away any that they find anywhere. Or the alcohol. For you or me, maybe it's putting a protective filter on our computer. It is removing the apparatus that sponsors our sin. It is scrupulous. It is scorched earth if necessary. What is it for you? What is sponsoring your distance in your marriage or 
your anger or drinking or pornography habit or your shopping? What is sponsoring your workaholism or your obsessiveness or your fear? C.S. Lewis wrote a book in uh, 1942 entitled The Screwtape Letters. If you have not read The Screwtape Letters, I highly recommend it to you. It's, it's a, a satirical, tongue-in-cheek collection of letters written by a fictional senior demon who was mentoring a junior demon named Wormwood. And the junior demon had been given a man's soul to oversee, and, and his job was to ensure that the man's soul ends up in hell and by all means avoid all contact uh, with God. Unfortunately for the junior demon, uh, the man became a Christian. So the remainder of the letters are filled with threats from the senior demon along with instructions on how to make sure that the man's life is, even though he's a Christian, that he remains empty of spiritual power and devoid of all influence on others. So I want you to hear a short selection on what he says about repentance. As long as your man does not convert it into action, it his sorrow, it his repentance. As long as your man does not convert it into action, it doesn't matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Let him wallow in it. Write a book about it. That's often an excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which Heavenly Father plants in the human soul. Do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination or affections will harm the cause of evil if it is kept out of his will. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act. The less he will ever be able to act, remember that. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Healthy, healthy repentance begins its work in godly sorrow. Brokenhearted regret over who we are and what we've done. And then that must be explored. It's not avoided or ignored. We dig in. We know we must really see it. We ask God. Otherwise, it lingers under the surface like a cancer and turns into insidious self-pity or self-protection. We, get, we dig in to really recognize it. And as we see it more and more clearly, we begin to take action. In fact, we do whatever we must, violence if necessary, to the apparatus that supports our sin. We're not trying to get it all right or be perfect. We're trying to change. Or better yet, we're trying to allow God to change us so that we're more like him. Stage four. We lay down a spiritual marker. This is a profoundly helpful and often overlooked or forgotten step. We need to remember. We need to commemorate what God has done. Listen to what King Josiah did. I want you to hear this. This is from the end of uh, chapter 23, verses 21 and 22, near the end. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. 
there's every indication that the Judites had ceased from celebrating Passover for generations. We, we don't know exactly how long it had been, but Josiah recognized the need of the people, his own need to commemorate their redirection, to remember their repentance, to, to mark this turning point. I once knew someone who tried to write a song every time uh, God did something new in his life. I have another friend who collects stones to commemorate uh, significant turning points in his walk with Christ. Wherever he is at that point in his life, he'll, he'll grab a pretty stone somewhere. He keeps these on a, a mantle in his home. I have another friend who journals about God's activity in her life and, and draws around her journals. I encourage you to think about marking the spiritual work that happens in your life. You know, a little while ago, I mentioned uh, baptism in Peter's speech. We're, we're baptizing a young man today. For those of you who are new to Gateway, welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, uh, we, we have some boards over here that we lift up, and there's a tank in there, and we, we have that full of water. And we'll do a baptism after our second service today. Uh, I think this is, stick around, if, by the way, if you'd like to see it. Uh, I think this is exactly the way the early Christians used baptism. It was a spiritual marker. It was a dramatic and beautifully symbolic way of saying, I'm all in, head to toe. That's why we practice believer's baptism here at Gateway. For those of you who may not know, we, we believe this is the way it was practiced in the New Testament, but also because of the richness of this act as a marker in our spiritual lives. We don't baptize our infants here at Gateway. We dedicate them, but we don't baptize them. We wait until they are old enough to declare for themselves, I'm at a new place, I'm at a turning point, and from now on, I'm going to be devoted to Christ. That's the direction of my life. Stage four, lay down a spiritual marker. Okay, well, we can't end this morning without recognizing that after King Josiah died, and we, we get hints of this through this chapter. You, you, it, you find it abruptly when you turn the page and go to chapter 24. Uh, after King Josiah died, Judah took a steep downward turn, both economically and spiritually. In other words, Josiah's reforms didn't really take. His personal repentance, which was substantial, and which produced real change in Josiah, it didn't spill over into the nation at large. This is why the prophetess Huldah told him, did you get that at the end of her prophecy over him? That he would be gathered, quote, gathered to your fathers in peace, and you will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring to this place, end quote. You won't see it, Josiah, because God has seen in your torn robes, that robes and in your deep regret and your, and your digging in, your desire to know more, and in your desecration of all of the apparatus that supports sin, God has seen that. And he sees that your heart is for him. So you'll be gathered in peace. But devastation is coming. Shortly after Josiah's death, Egypt began to exert control over Judah. There was a battle. King Josiah was actually killed in that battle. And then uh, Judah, uh, Egypt began to tax Judah heavily, and this was really the beginning of the end. They were never really completely independent after that point. I'm, I'm reading right now 
for my own devotional life, I'm reading the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, by the way, was roughly a contemporary of uh, Josiah. He, he was alive and prophesying during part of Josiah's reign and then after Josiah. Um, but they overlapped for a while. And I read something the other morning that was deeply discouraging to me, knowing that this is on the heels of Jeremiah's reform and his profound repentance. Jeremiah says this, chapter, chapter 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? No is the answer he's looking for. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Remember that word from C.S. Lewis? Eventually, he'll even be unable to feel. Real change is really possible, but it's really, really hard. It involves the deep work of healthy repentance, and we can't shortcut it. And look, the final sobering reminder that we get from this entire period of Judah's history is that you can't, you can't wait. Or the reverse, you can wait too long. You can minimize, you can self-protect, you can call foul balls, you can feel bad, but never move toward action for too long. You can become so accustomed doing evil that you can't turn. You can't repent. There are no more turning points left. Don't wait. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And I want us this morning to uh, all of us, I want us to bow our head and close our eyes for a minute. And I'm going to ask God to come and do some work. So let's pray. While your head bowed and eyes are closed, I want to I say even to you, if you're watching at home, I want, you, I want you to get still and I want you to bow your head and close your eyes and I want you to give God a minute. God, we want you to be glorified through your word and in our lives. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. I want you to stay still and quiet for a moment. I want you to keep your eyes closed. I just, let's just eliminate all distractions. We're going to give God another minute, and, and uh, we're going to do some lab work. I don't know where you are in this process, but uh, God's Spirit is here, and I'm convinced that um, someone this morning is at stage one. And maybe this morning's message has been the beginning of stage two. I'm also convinced that there are those of us who have been tracking with this for a long time, who have been at stage two for a long time, and we have not engaged in stage three, and we've not removed the apparatus that supports our sin, and I want to I want to encourage you in the strongest possible terms not to wait. 
And I'm also aware that I may be speaking to someone who may have never started. You've never, you've never taken the first step in this direction. You have never, for, for, one, for the first time in, 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 in an all-in way, you've never said, I surrender. I give myself to you. I've, I've, this is, I, I'm, I'm where I am because of my best efforts, and it ain't that great, and, and I need your help, Jesus. I want you to save me. If you've never had that experience, if you've never made that declaration, I mean heart, mind, and will, don't wait. Can I want you to keep your eyes closed for just another minute? And in a second, I'm going to ask us to open our eyes. And I'm going to ask uh, if you have felt particularly moved by God today, I want to give you an opportunity to lay down a spiritual marker. And I'm going to ask you to stand. It's okay if, if no one stands. Uh, I don't want you to stand because you think this is a great sermon. I don't want you to stand because, yes, that was interesting hearing about four stages of repentance. I want you to stand if your heart is moved today and you need to lay down a spiritual marker. It may be the first time or it may be, it may be the hundredth time, but here's the thing. I don't know why God answers a, doesn't answer a prayer or doesn't seem to answer a prayer 99 times on the hundredth time he does, but he's done it for me many times. Don't wait. Okay, let's open our eyes. Here's the thing. Real, healthy repentance doesn't care who knows. You may be all alone, but if you need to lay down a spiritual marker today, I'm going to ask you, their eyes wide open. I'm going to ask you to stand. for just a minute. Don't wait. There's a movement in your heart. Don't wait. Real repentance doesn't care who knows. Jesus, in your name, I pray that you would seal up the work that has been done this morning. And if there was someone who was hesitating, Lord, please continue to press. Provide us another opportunity to step in. 